Lord, we come as your people, giving thanks to you for your goodness to us. And we give back to you these, our tithes and our offerings. Lord, we do so with cheerful hearts, and we entrust to you to use them according to your will. Give us faith as we give these to you, that all that we have is from you. We've done nothing, we've accomplished nothing by our own hands. It's only by grace that we receive anything. And so, cause our hearts to grow in faith, that we are confident that we look to you as our provider and help us to be generous in our lives as we give to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah 13, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Jeremiah 13, verse 1, this is the Word of God. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. 
Where is the flock that was given you, you beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do, you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot. The portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame shall be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and nains, your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? Let's pray. Father, would you, as we have sung and prayed, take your word and plant it deep within us. Open our eyes that we can see difficult things, hard things, true things about our own hearts, our own waywardness, our own sinfulness. But then lift our heads up, Lord. Lift our heads up that we may see the ascended Christ reigning in glory having conquered all of our sins, having forgiven us all of our unrighteousness, lift our heads up and give us great hope that as our sins are forgiven, so is our security set for all time. We have a future and a hope because of you. May we see and know that today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It may not be a safe question to ask in church, but have you ever thought of someone as good for nothing? Maybe something, if you don't want to think of a person. um, Maybe I shouldn't encourage that. It's a phrase that isn't used as commonly in our modern culture, but a good for nothing was someone who was, you know, a non-productive member of society. A good-for-nothing was someone who was at least lazy and possibly dishonest, maybe both. A good-for-nothing was a way of saying of someone, not that they were literally good-for-nothing, not that they lacked any sense of worth, but that they simply weren't living up to what they should in that society. When it comes to an object, much of what we have today becomes good-for-nothing. You know, it used to be that if you had something, if it broke, you tried to fix it. Uh, or try to repurpose it or use it in a different way. But today, almost everything we, we, we have is disposable because it's either impossible to fix or it's cost prohibitive to try and fix. And if you, like me, go to the dump to take your trash, you see every week a fresh load of all the stuff that people have deemed, not the garbage, but all the stuff they set out to the side of things that you think, that still looks new, you know, or uh, people just get rid of things because they become... Good for nothing. Well, in Jeremiah 13, we see the prophet instructed not only to speak a message to the people, but to, in a sense, act it out, to demonstrate it in action, this message given to the people of Judah. And it involves this loincloth that becomes useless after Jeremiah does what he's instructed to do by going and hiding it along the river bank. And then he's told to give the explanation that Judah has become 
spoiled by her own sin, and thus the Lord will spoil her pride by carrying her off into exile by Babylon. It's a message that has this initial warning, but if you noticed while we read, there are actually many warnings in the passage. There are five total. And they focus not only on the polluting effects of sin, but particularly on pride. And I think there's a connection. Pride has a way of affecting our entire lives and leading us into sin and deceiving us or deluding us into thinking that we're okay or we're not sinning that bad or what we're doing is not really wrong. Pride has this way of doing that in our hearts, and we need to be aware of it. If you look in verse 8, the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem is pointed out. That God has recognized, and we've seen this again and again, God has recognized the people have put their confidence in their status as the chosen people of God, in their system of worship, the temple worship, the priestly sacrificial system. And they thought that the covenant status would protect them from any sense of discipline. That they could go on doing whatever that they wanted. They were so full of pride that they had become deluded into thinking that they could live in opposition to God. And the sins have been listed again and again. We could probably all quote them by now. It's, you know, idol worship. It's the cultic sexual practices. It's following their own heart's desire. They thought they could do all of these things and not offend God. They had their pet sins. Maybe they had some secret sins. Others may have flaunted their sins, but they acted like it didn't matter because they knew they were God's people. And today, Christians can be tripped up into thinking the same thing, that because we're forgiven and because nothing can separate us from God's love, that we don't have to take sin seriously. That kind of pride and arrogance deludes us into thinking something very dangerous. Sin is always serious. Sin is seriously wrong. And because of Judah's pride, they are going to be shamed And we read this in the passage through this act of judgment when Babylon comes. Discipline will be served to bring them to an awareness. If they aren't going to listen to the voice of God, he is going to drag them away through the desert off to Babylon so that they will become aware of their sin and truly repent. It's always the point of discipline, to lead to repentance. Jeremiah says in verse 17, he will weep because of their pride. We see in verse 18 that the king is going to be removed in a humiliating act from power. The nation will be shamed. We see this in the last warning, the the, the language that's used of them being stripped naked and being exposed in the fifth warning. So as we move through this passage this morning, let's keep in mind the overall theme of pride's polluting effect in our own lives, whereby we too can become delusional and we can fail to see how easy it is to become good for nothing. That is, to waste the days that God has given us. That we can waste the lives that He's given us. He made us for His glory. And we, when, we, when we don't live for His glory, we become like Judah, is described in this passage. Look with me in verse 1. We hear the Lord instruct Jeremiah to go shopping and buy this loincloth, wrapping it around his waist, and he gives the added instruction not to dip it in water. 
Now, I don't know what you think of this loincloth, or if you ever heard this passage taught about, you know, you could have named the sermon Captain Underpants or something really cute, like was this Jeremiah's underwear, and I know I've heard that before, and I just assumed uh, that, uh, now every half the audience is really uncomfortable because I said underwear in the pulpit. Um, <laughs> I've always thought that that's what it was, so I hope to not disappoint you today that I don't think that it's his underwear. Uh, this word that's used for loincloth is only used a few times in Scripture in the Old Testament. And it's used mostly here in Jeremiah in this story. That's where the majority of the appearances are. It does appear in four other books, but only six times total. So it's a pretty rarely used word in the Old Testament. And that does make it more difficult to translate when we have a word that's not used very often because uh, translators will use context and, and, and so forth to try and understand what the word means uh, when it's a dead language or an ancient language that we don't have um, uh, a direct uh, a translation for. And so we see this as belt or loincloth or waistcloth in the ESV. If you have the NIV or another translation, you might see similar words that are used. And so it's either an undergarment or something like a belt or a, a tunic that was wrapped around the waist. I believe after studying this week that it was something visible. I don't think it was something under Jeremiah's clothing because the whole point of it was that the people would see it. The people needed to see this. And you can make the argument that Jeremiah was running around in his underwear, but there's nothing in here that says that, so I don't, I'm, I'm not going there. I think this was just a tunic around his waist, and I think it lends itself to the actual, the whole, the whole account. Regardless, though, of what it was, That's not where the emphasis needs to be because the meaning remains the same. That the belt was to represent the people of God wrapped around Jeremiah's waist in the picture that they would see to show the closeness of what the covenantal relationship should have looked like. The people of God were designed, were created, were set apart and chosen to cling to God. That's the image that we need to have in our head. Now, the material is also specified. It's to be made of linen. Linen was not everyday clothing. It was special clothing. It was worn by the priests. Judah was to be a kingdom of priests unto their God. And again, I think because the the material is specified, it lends itself again to a visual piece of clothing, something that people would have seen, not an undergarment. And with the additional instruction not to get it wet, we're not told why that is, and so speculation was this so it wasn't tainted or, you know, was it that it retained its original appearance, at least as he wore it before it was spoiled. We don't know exactly why that instruction is there, but Jeremiah obeys the Lord, and he goes and he buys this belt, loincloth, waistcloth, tunic, whatever it was, and he puts it on and he wears it. And he wears it for an undisclosed amount of time. And then in verse 3, the Lord comes to him again. I think he wore it for a period of time to let the people see it. They would have noticed. It was a piece of clothing. Again, the linen would have stood out. People would have noticed this wasn't Jeremiah's normal garb. It would have been like somebody uh, wearing, uh, you know, if Zach started wearing a scarf to church on Sunday or an ascot or something, we would all notice that because that's not what Zach normally wears nor any of the others of us. I just made that up on the fly, Zach. I'm not picking on you. I wish I had thought of that earlier. um So it was something that people would have noticed. And so he wore it for a period of time that they would have noticed. And then after that period of time, the Lord comes to him and he gives gives him the instructions to take it 
and to hide it. And he tells him where to take it. And you notice the location is mentioned numerous times in the verse. It's the Euphrates, it's the Euphrates, it's the Euphrates. Why is it the Euphrates? Well, the Euphrates flowed through Babylon. And so the intention is to point the people to where they're going to be carried off into exile. Now, depending on where along the river Jeremiah went to hide it, it would have been at least 300 miles away, so a really far distance. And because of that, some have taken this to think that it was a parable, that Jeremiah couldn't or wouldn't have traveled that far. Um, I think that there's no reason in the text specifically because Jeremiah's ministry spanned 40 years that a few months' journey each direction, four times total, would not have been a deterrent to Jeremiah. He, 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 this could have been what he did. I don't see any reason not to think that Jeremiah actually took the 300-plus-mile the, the journey to the Euphrates to bury this. But there is another plausible, I won't mention all the, the arguments that are given, but there is one that is also plausible that I think is of interest, and that is there was a region just north of Anathoth where Jeremiah is from, so just a little bit further north of Jerusalem, that was known as Para. And Para, in the springtime, uh, the, the rains would come and create a stream through the rocks there, and so they would have a temporary stream during that season. Well, the word para sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for Euphrates, uh, paroth. And the consonants are actually identical. If you remember when we've talked about the Hebrew language, they use consonants and only sometimes do they put the vowel pointings there. If you pick up formal, uh, or I'm sorry, if you pick up informal like a newspaper even today, there's no consonants. So you, as you learn the language, you fill the consonants in yourself. And if you've ever seen the email that goes around with all the, in English, with all the, the vowels removed and you can still read it, why? Because your brain's been trained to, to fill in what those vowels are. And so that's how the way Hebrew readers read on a daily basis. So in the case of these two words, they look identical because they're the same exact consonants, only the vowels differ. And so this particular place could have been where Jeremiah went, and the people could have made the connection that the sounds were similar and the letters were similar, they were the same in the consonants, and they would have then made the connection that this was the Euphrates River, that's where they would have been carried away. Whatever the location was, again, the emphasis is not on exactly what happened. I believe he went to the Euphrates, others might think that he did not, uh, but it doesn't change the meaning of what's trying to be communicated here. The message is that the people are going to be carried off to Babylon. That is the message. That's where the belt is being hidden. That's where it's going to be spoiled. And because the Lord is going to explain to them, I'm going to spoil your pride. You haven't listened to my voice, so I'm going to carry you off to this far distant place where the Euphrates flows, and there I'm going to spoil your pride. Well, verse 6 says, After many days, Jeremiah was instructed to return to get the loincloth, and verse 7 then describes its condition. It was completely ruined. The loincloth, it says, was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Good for nothing. Had no use. There's nothing. You couldn't repurpose this loincloth. It was garbage. Then the Lord explains the lesson to Jeremiah, and he tells him to give this message or explanation to the people, that just like the linen loincloth, God would spoil the pride of Judah, verse 9. And then he gives the reason in verse 10. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth which is good for nothing. The discipline 
of this spoiling act, it is an act of discipline, is based on the pattern of the people's behavior. Stubborn hearts, idol worship, right? It's much, the list was much longer, but those are the two general descriptions given here. They refused to hear God's word. Remember, under Josiah's reign, the scroll had been rediscovered, so they had the written word of God. They refused to acknowledge it. Now he sends the prophet Jeremiah, among other prophets. They refuse to listen to him. He's not saying that they are good for nothing in their worth as an image bearer of the creator, but that their behavior had demonstrated a repeated breaking of the covenant requirement. They were not living up to their purpose. That covenant language is used in verse 11. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. They would not listen. The intention of the covenant was that the people of God would be so close to him, wrapped around him, clinging to him. The word for cling... It's the same word used in Genesis 2.24, which is often recited during wedding ceremonies. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife that they may become one flesh. That's the picture that is here. It's a marital picture. Just like we are portrayed as the bride of Christ in the New Testament, here the Old Testament people of God are portrayed in that same wedded sense. But the people of Israel, now the people of Judah had both adulterated this covenant bond because they would not listen. And yet in this, because it's the covenant, is still this glimmer of hope, isn't there? There's still this this hope because we know God is the keeper of the covenant. God established the covenant that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. And because of his faithfulness to keep the covenant, this coming judgment, this discipline would not be the end of the story. God would preserve for himself a remnant that he might carry out the promises that he had uh, foretold. The second warning in 12 to 14, we'll go through these last four much more quickly. The second warning involves imagery, again, that the people might see it to better understand the message. Verse 12, every jar shall be filled with wine. And then Jeremiah is told, this is what the people will say back to you. Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? It's almost sarcastic, and the Lord tells him this ahead of time. A lot of people think that every jar shall be filled with wine. If you look at that statement, every jar shall be filled with wine, it's kind of, I mean, you kind of get the people's response. It's it's a no-duh kind of statement. And particularly in Hebrew, because the word for jar there is wine jar or wine skin. It's, It's that this particular container is made for wine, so it will be filled with wine. So you can understand why the people might have responded this way. A lot of people think that this was a modern saying. It was almost a catchphrase in the culture. And that when Jeremiah said this, they kind of uh, responded in this kind of blah, 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 or yada, yada, yada kind of way. But there's more to the message here than just the wine and the wineskins or the wine jars. Wine in the Old Testament is often used as a symbol for gladness and blessing. It's used in the Passover symbolically. It's used to celebrate. But the message of these wine jars is that of judgment. The Lord says to the people, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the king who sits on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another. There's the image that the people can see. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord, I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. 
Here, the lesson is that of intoxicating judgment, that all of the inhabitants will then become so intoxicated that they will smash against one another. And again, we see the leaders called out. This is one of the things that Jeremiah continues to do throughout his messages is call the leaders out for their failure to shepherd the flock of Judah. The people, they took pride in the temple. They took pride in the religious system. They took pride in the sacrificial worship and the priestly system. They took pride in the kingly line of David. And he calls all of these out and says that the judgment that's coming then is that fathers will be at odds with their sons. In other words, families will turn on one another. This is going to go so deep that there will be no loyalty. It will be insane, we might say, in the day of judgment. No pity, no compassion, which is probably the most sobering part of this warning. Third warning, verses 15 to 17, it continues addressing the pride of Judah with a call to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 16, give glory to the Lord. Now you might read past that, Or you might read it and you might think that's kind of an unusual statement to be included there. You're addressing the sinful people, give glory to the Lord sounds out of place. But this was the phrase that people understood what it meant. The phrase that Joshua used to Achan. When Achan, after the battle of Jericho, and he stole some of the goods, and then they were defeated at Ai, and God comes to Joshua and says, You've sinned against me, and through a series of casting lots, they determine the guilty party. And so there Achan stands, guilty. He has no defense. Everyone knows he's the guilty party. And what does Joshua say to him? Give glory to the Lord. It's a way of saying, confess your sins. Admit what you have done. You have no leg to stand on here. Acknowledge what you have done. So here the people of Judah recognize this phrase to give glory to the Lord and they know that this is a call to admit their wrongdoing, to admit their sin, the call to confession. And this is preceded then by what will come if they do not before he brings darkness, verse 10, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. And yet we know what the people will do. We know the end of the story. They will continue to plug their ears. They will continue to walk in rebellion. And this brings great grief to Jeremiah and ultimately to the Lord. Look in verse 17. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. This word taken captive looks past tense to us in English. It's that another one of those prophetic perfects, right? It's speaking of a future event, but it's written in the past tense. So it's saying this will certainly happen. There's no question this is going to happen. They will be taken captive. The fourth warning, very brief in verses 18 to 19, but it addresses the leaders of Judah again, this time the king and his mother. Now there's some, it doesn't name the king, so we're not certain, but I think it most likely fits Jehoiakim and his mother Nehushta because he was only 18 when he took uh, the throne. And he lasted there only three months before Nebuchadnezzar carried he and his mother off to Babylon. But during this time, his mother would have had unusual power because of his age, because of his youth. She would have been his counsel. And so great pride would have uh, possibly risen up in them And so now the Lord says to them, take the lowly seat. The lowly seat is that of the servant. The crown is removed from his head. They are now like servants and they will be carried off in this humiliating act. One that was humiliating for them personally, but also for the entire people as the Negev is shut off. No one is there to deliver them. Judgment and this exile is for certain. 
And then finally, the fifth warning in verses 20 to the end. This one is graphic of the shame that is to come with the pictures of nakedness there uh, that will come upon the people of Judah. They are first called upon to look to the north. We know what that means now, don't we? It's, that's where Babylon's going to come from. They're going to come around, not through the desert, but come around from the north to invade, to carry them off into exile. And then verse 21 they're asked, what will you say when they set his head over you, those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? What is this talking about? Well, the people of Israel and the people of Judah had learned to look to saviors other than Yahweh. They had looked, Israel had looked to Assyria, and Assyria let them down, didn't deliver them. And now Judah was looking to Egypt, and Egypt would also fail to deliver them from the Babylonians. Over and over again, we see throughout the Old Testament, God calling his people to look to him alone. And this is the same tendency we have today to look for other saviors, right? We get so caught up in looking to you know, our investments or to a political figure or to something else as to be our deliverer. If just this one thing would happen, my life would be secure. My life would be good. I could relax. I could feel safe. And God says to us over and over again, look to me, look to me. This problem has been there throughout all of time. So because they looked to the Egyptians, they would again be dismayed. And like the pangs of childbirth, they would experience the pain of judgment. Verse 22, that people still ask, why have these things come upon me? And I'm starting to get puzzled now why the people keep asking this. Because you think, you know, we're only 13 chapters into the book. And they keep asking the same question over and over like they they don't get it. But... The Lord answers them. It's because it's, you've proven who you are. He uses this image of a person changing their skin color or an animal changing the coat of their skin, and no one can do this, right? And he's saying, even so, you have been doing this for so long that it seems as impossible for you to do good as it is impossible for a leopard to change its spots. They had become accustomed to evil. Accustomed to evil. They had made wrongdoing the norm to the point they don't even know how to do what's right now. So their portion, God says to them, will be like the chaff, that useless part of the grain blown away with the wind during the harvest. What's interesting here is, and and we normally don't get into this much language stuff, but there have been a number of things in this passage that, that are insightful into the meaning of the text. And here, this is not the normal word for chaff. This actually refers to the stubble which is of less value than the chaff. See, the chaff was attached to the kernel and we carried back during the harvest, and then when they would winnow it, throw it up in the air, the chaff would blow away, but it was at least attached to the kernel. The stubble, which is the word that's used here, is the stuff that would just fall off in the field. It was wor- wor- less worth, more worthless. What's the right modifier there? It, it, it's worth less than even the worthless chaff that is blown away with wind. And the picture here is just as this stubble is then left in the field and carried off and blown off into the desert by the wind, so would the people be carried off by Babylon. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies, verse 25. That to me is such a sobering statement. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. All of these images that are used here in this passage are designed to portray to Judah what was to come to them and why. They weren't just words, were they? They were were pictures. They were Jeremiah 
carrying out this act of obedience to take this piece of clothing and then bring it back and show them and let them see what was going to happen. It was the, the wine jars being smashed together. It's the king having his crown removed and they see this humiliating act. It's the chaff, the stubble in the field that's blown away. All things that they could see vividly and clearly that their pride has led them to their own ruin. Yes, God is sovereign in this judgment, but they have only themselves to blame because of their actions. They have rebelled. They have closed their ears. They have oppressed each other, and they have worshipped false gods. The message that we don't need to miss today is that sin destroys. It seems like that Judah just, just couldn't get this. Now, we understand that the wages of sin is death, and those of us who are believers now have the free gift of God through Jesus that is eternal life, right? Our sins are forgiven. But we mustn't make light of sin just because our sins are forgiven. Sin is destructive. Romans 6.16 asks, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? David writes in Psalm 38, and the whole psalm is is a vivid picture of the effects of sin. In Psalm 38, he writes, There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Sin destroys. But sin not only destroys, sin multiplies. Sin breeds more sin. Jeremiah in chapter 9 verse 3 said, They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and truth, uh, or falsehood and not truth has grown strong in their hand. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord. David in Psalm 40, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. That's the picture of sin. We see this progression of how sin works in James 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If you think some sins can be kept secret, if you think they won't affect anyone but you, if you think you can have sin as a pet, you're wrong. Sin destroys and sin multiplies. So sin destroys us, it multiplies, it's the nature of it, and then as it works its way outward, it always affects people around us. Sin breaks relationships, it fractures relationships. One of the lies so many Christians believe is that there are victimless sins. There are no victimless sins. Sin breaks relationships, first with God and then with others. Moses in Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The Lord is omniscient. We keep nothing from Him. He knows it all. We might be able to keep things secret in this life, but the fear of getting caught, the necessary lies to hide the sin, the guilt, the shame, all of these things affect all of our relationships. Sin destroys, sin multiplies, It enslaves and it ultimately robs us of good things. So at the end of the day, whether we choose to volitionally sin or willfully refuse to fight against sin, our lives become good for nothing when we do this. That isn't to say we lose our value 
We are still image bearers of God, but it means that we're not living our lives as they were intended to be. Put a diamond necklace around the neck of an armadillo and it is good for nothing. I would have said put a gold ring in a pig's snout because that's what the proverb, the picture of the proverb uses. Why does the proverb say that? Because what does a pig do? It goes right back to the mud, right? So there's no reason to adorn a pig. It makes the golden ring pretty much useless because it just goes back into the mud. But I may or may not have a personal vendetta against an armadillo this past week. So the image that came in my mind was if you put a necklace around an armadillo, it's pointless because this is hideous creature that destroys your yard and landscaping is not going to make the necklace shine its intended purpose. But if you took the necklace off the armadillo and put it around a lady's neck, then its proper worth is restored. Our lives were meant to live as a people of God, a name, a praise, and a glory unto him. So where do we go with our sin? There's only one place to go with it. It's the blood of Jesus. He is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But beyond the confession that we all need because we all sin, we also need to have a good offense before we sin. We're called on to mortify the flesh or mortify sin, to to fight, kill it. Take sin seriously. Don't treat it like a pet. So how do you mortify sin? Seek help. Every one of us needs it. Not one of us is immune to this battle. Seek help. Have a friend. Seek accountability. Get someone else involved in the battle. Don't go it alone. Talk to God about your struggle and seek his help. You're not going to fight against sin if you're not praying. Talk to me, any one of the elders. Talk to someone else about combating sin. Those whom God has sovereignly placed in your life who can offer help. Hide God's word in your heart. Why? so that you might not sin against him. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, so that you might not sin against him. Don't simply pretend that temptation will go away. Don't think that you can keep sin secret or that there won't be consequences. Jeremiah's message to Judah is that sin will carry you away so that you believe lies and forget your God. I cannot think of a scarier place for a child of God that you would believe lies and forget your God. I don't want to go there. But I can tell you from personal experience, that's, that's where sin takes you. Sin takes you to the place where you start to believe lies your own, maybe the lies of others, and you forget your God. It's a dangerous place to be. Hear his warning, because this applies to us today too. This is right where we are. This is, this is where our lives are. Hear his call to give glory to God in the way that Joshua used it to Achan, to confess and believe, and in so doing, see that your linen belt is restored, is made clean and whole. Cling to God because he clings to you. He's the covenant keeper. He promises to let nothing separate us from his love. Don't forget that. And because of that great covenant-keeping love that has no end, face and fight sin. Face and fight sin that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. And know and rest in the promise that God leads us in Christ to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's why he made us. And so may we go and be that fragrant aroma. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause us to see 
our sin and to take our sin seriously. Lord, all of us would, would I think, quickly admit that, that we don't want to walk in sin. We don't want to perpetually be bound or enslaved to it. We don't want to be indifferent to it. We know it's hideous. We know it's harmful to us. It's destructive. We know that it only leads to more sin. We know that it breaks relationships, fractures our relationship with you and others. So it's not where we want to be. But Lord, sin is powerful and can have great hold over us. And so would you break, break, the, break this power of sin in our lives? I pray for those who are mindful of specific things right now that they want to, to, to fight against. Would you give them the strength? Lord, would you so connect us as a body of Christ that we might help each other, walk alongside, strengthen one another, even exhort one another, point out areas of struggle that we, that we see in each other's lives. May we be humble. May pride not get a foothold in our lives, that we become so delusional that we begin to believe lies and forget our God. Lord, we don't want to go there. Would you guard and protect us against that? And then would you lead us as you continually sanctify us to become that fragrant aroma of Christ as we go out and live to your glory, that we might be a people, a name, a glory, and a praise unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.